Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.29, The New England Roundup. Well, here we are, guys, 15 episodes on New England, and today we are going to finally wrap this up. Now, of course, we aren't really going to be leaving New England for all that long. Throughout the colonial period of the United States, New England is going to remain an epicenter of events. However, for the sake of this season, I needed to find a place to draw the line in the sand, and this seems like as good of time as any. Before we move on for today, I want to give a brief idea of where the podcast is going for the rest of this season. After today, we only have got one more episode in the main narrative. Next time, we are going to jump in and look at the introduction of slavery into the colonies. After that, we are going to be ready to get into the review episodes. Now here's the good news. I'm a little bit further ahead on research and other things than I thought I would be at this point, so we are not going to be looking at a long break in between the seasons like I had originally thought. At this point, my plan is to take one week off sometime around Christmas, and that'll be about it. We will have a two-part review episode where we go back and look at all of the different things and try to draw some strings together, and then we will jump right in to the second season. So at this point, I anticipate that we are only going to have a one-week break sometime around the holidays. Other than that, the podcast will just keep moving. To begin for today, I want to start by discussing the events in England and how they are going to affect life over in New England. Way back in episode 1.13, we had talked about the fact that when the English Civil Wars came, Virginia had remained a holdout for as long as possible against Parliament, and specifically against Oliver Cromwell. This, along with re-electing William Berkeley as their governor, set Virginia up very nicely for when the Restoration rolls around in the 1660s. Events were very different, however, in New England. Oliver Cromwell was a Puritan. And let's not forget why all of the Puritans left England in the first place. There was widespread persecution of the Puritans throughout the 1620s and 30s. So many of the colonial leaders became colonists in direct response to the practices of Charles I, and more specifically his henchman, William Laud. The policies of Charles I and Laud were the reason for the Great Migration happening. And while I can't find a source specifically stating this, I think it is a pretty safe bet that when Laud was beheaded in January of 1645, there was not exactly a lot of colonists grieving his death. Even with the execution of Charles I, I would imagine that celebrations were a bit more muted than in the case with William Laud. However, there was very little love for Charles I amongst the Puritans. In the case of Virginia, they found themselves on the wrong side of the battle, having remained loyal to House Stuart. However, the effects were fairly minimal there. Over in Virginia, when their governor was forced to resign, there was little practical effect in Virginia. With New England, however, the colony had been built upon animosity towards Laud and the King. So this is where I tell you about the great battle between New England and Virginia, right? After all, New England is Puritan, and Virginia would remain aligned with the crown. Of course, everybody would want to desperately defend their honor, right? Yeah, no, that battle never came and was never really much of a risk. Throughout the duration of the English Civil Wars, as well as the English Interregnum, the period where the nation was under the protectorate following the fall of Charles I and the ascension of Charles II, there was only a single skirmish in the English Civil War fought in North America. It was in Maryland near Annapolis, and right around 50 people died. This is going to go down in 1655. On the ground in New England itself, there was no actual fighting or violence. The major tangible effect was a reduction in the population and a decline in the immigration rate. 
As I mentioned just a moment ago, the cause of the Great Migration was largely driven by the policies of William Laud. Puritans, attempting to avoid his persecution, decided that it was a great time to get out of Dodge, left their homes, with around 25,000 finding their way to North America. Following the end of Charles I's period of personal rule and the establishment of what would become known as the Long Parliament, aptly named because it remained in session until 1660 and hence was very long, we see those who had been loyal to Charles begin to get impeached and arrested. This includes men like William Laud. The beginning of the Long Parliament effectively marks the end of the Great Migration to New England. Despite how stable things had begun to appear throughout Massachusetts and the rest of New England, in all fairness, things are still pretty rough. Given the choice, pretty much anybody is going to want to remain in England as opposed to packing up and heading across the Atlantic. As the threat of persecution diminished, the need to hop on a boat and immigrate across the Atlantic to New England was also drastically reduced. On top of that, in addition to the reduction in immigration from England to New England, there was a proportion of the population who believed that this would be a good time to head back across the Atlantic the other direction and return home to England. By the time that 1640 had rolled around, life in New England was at least becoming bearable, however. People were not starving and the colony was not overcome with illness and disease. Plus, for a lot of colonists, they had a good thing going to New England that they would lose if they decided to return back home. Well, nobody in New England was preaching for anything that resembled a desire for independence from the crown, it's not like the crown had ever really exercised that much control over the New England colonies. Charles I was busy throughout the 1630s not calling Parliament and trying to raise funds. He didn't really have the time to worry about trivial matters like how the New England colonies were off effectively governing themselves. None of the Puritans in New England would have been all that upset, though admittedly they were probably a bit surprised at the execution of Charles I. They were likely thrilled to see a Puritan England getting more of a foothold. But for those living in New England in 1640, they had spent the last decade living in a Puritan nation, basically unchecked and largely unnoticed. In that way, there was very little point in returning to England for a Puritan haven when they already had one in New England. Well, some do go back there for to fight, most chose to remain right there in New England. The Puritans, as devout as they were, did not believe that piety and poverty went hand in hand. The Puritans were more than happy to make money and economic prosperity absolutely was a keen interest to them. So then how did the Puritans go about making their money? Unlike what we saw down in Virginia, there is never a point where a single staple crop appears. Tobacco is a crop that is going to completely define the southern United States, and along with cotton are going to become the staples of that region. Tobacco and cotton are going to play significant roles in the history of the southern United States and ultimately the United States at large. However, the situation in New England is different. The primary way that wealth found its way into New England was from colonists coming over from England. In other words, New England depended on the fact that the new colonists coming over from England brought with them wealth. That transfer of wealth from England into the colony was initially self-sustaining, especially during the 1630s during the Great Migration. For obvious reasons, however, this is an inherently unstable system. If that steady flood of new colonists were to, say, dry up, it is going to completely stall the economy. As we now know, by the time 1641 arrives, the Great Migration was over. That steady stream of colonists dried up. This form of gathering wealth is obviously never going to be sustainable, and this wouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. With the end of the Great Migration, an immediate need to diversify the economy of New England became a paramount concern. 
This as economic depression began to settle in at the end of the Great Migration. What initially emerged was a fishing trade. The ocean right off the coast of New England was already a popular spot for fishing. However, the English Civil Wars had been a boon to the New Englanders. English fishing boats could not easily get off of the English coast to fish with the ongoing Civil Wars. This gave the New Englanders a competitive advantage. The colonists would ship the high-quality product to Spain and other parts of Europe, while the low-quality catch went south to the West Indies to feed the growing slave population, something that we will talk more about next time. For the Puritans, an economy based on fishing was great because, hey, we all like economic prosperity. The problem, however, is that the Puritans and the fishermen didn't really get along. This isn't really going to be a shocking revelation. Sailors, especially those coming to North America to make money in the 1640s, didn't exactly have a reputation of high moral fiber. These guys like to drink, swear, and do all of the other unsavory things that sailors do. The Puritans were aghast at the behavior and were always careful not to let this unwelcome though profitable group disrupt their carefully curated colony. To keep fishing from forming the one and only cash crop in New England and having that culture completely take over, it was necessary for the Puritans to further diversify the economy. What emerges here is something that would become a staple of the New England way of life, the family farm. Instead of the huge plantation system that we see emerging in the South, New Englanders instead focused on smaller farms, which brought dual benefits. First, a small farm was great for personal sustenance. You could grow your own food, which you could then eat yourself. The other benefit is that the remainder of that food that you grew, the stuff that you personally did not need to eat, was a great source of income. While a small surplus of food might not have been enough for any single person to get rich, when taken in the aggregate, New England was producing large amounts of surplus that could then be sold in bulk. Once again, this food was often being sold to the West Indies, where the growing slave population put new demands on that region to produce food. The crops for sale included everything from pork, beef, barley, and dairy products, as well as things like timber, tar, and plankboard. By selling surplus from otherwise small family farms, the Puritans were able to accomplish a couple of important goals. First, and most importantly to them, they were able to turn a nice profit which everybody was happy about. Second, they were able to keep fishing, and more importantly fishermen, from taking over the economy and inevitably ending their way of life. The small individual farm is going to become an important part of the fabric of New England life, and is going to remain a characterizing feature of it moving on into the future. This form of an economy is also going to lead to other developments that are going to end up being important in the long term. The large plantations in Virginia required huge amounts of labor. Tobacco is a labor-intensive crop and required a large amount of manpower. The best way to get that manpower in the 1640s was through slavery. In New England, smaller personal farms were far less labor-dependent. Most of the food was grown by the individual family with just surplus being sold back. These are not the massive farming operations, and the need for slave labor was far less in New England than in Virginia. This isn't to say that slavery doesn't exist in New England, because it does. However, it doesn't exist to the same extent that it will develop in Virginia, nor is it as critical of a part of the economy. The economic structure of Virginia depended on slavery, and in New England that just doesn't ring true. Now, in all fairness, the New England economy still was dependent on slavery, though in a different way. While slave labor was not a huge facet of the New England economy, 
the West Indies was a huge buyer of the surplus being created by the small farms, as well as the B-grade fish supply, where the primary consumer of the goods was the growing slave population. If the West Indies slave system collapsed, the New England economy was going down with it. Over the remainder of the 17th century, we are going to see the economy of New England become more diverse, as manufacturing is going to become a key component of that economy. While this is not going to be part of our story for today, it continues with the general trend that there was never any one single cash crop in New England, but rather numerous things that would come into play. Having so much diversity in the market meant that the New England colonies were more insulated from economic downturns and that ultimately they would not have the absolute reliance on a small number of things like we're going to see in Virginia. As with the economy, we see that defense is something that is ultimately going to become regional in nature as opposed to strictly limited to any single colony. The defense of the colony would really become of paramount importance following the Pequot War, as for the first time the threat of local Indian tribes really hit home. Dangers of the native tribes was not a secret before that, of course. Everybody was acutely aware of the 1622 massacre in Jamestown, and it is something that was always on the mind of the colonists. However, as we've discussed before, in New England there wasn't really a Powhatan or an Opashankana. There had been some early skirmishes and pressures that we had talked about previously, but there was never anything on par with what we saw in Jamestown. Even the events that led to the Pequot War looked dubious at best, as the colonists around New England appeared to be looking for a fight. Despite an overwhelming, if not troubling, victory in the Pequot War, New Englanders realized the importance of having something in place to defend the security of the colonies. What emerges from this is the New England Confederation. The New England Confederation was formed in 1643 and was made up of Massachusetts, Plymouth, New Haven, and Connecticut. As we discussed last week, Rhode Island was not invited to the party. The New England Confederation does a couple things, but before we go into those things, I want to get out there and dispel any thought that there was any kind of centralized government here. So don't start thinking of this as a confederation of states or anything like that. It just wasn't. The New England Confederation was, at best, a weak alliance. In function, all it really did was provide a handful of solutions for intercolonial law relations and dispute resolutions as they came up. The Confederation also did provide a framework for the colonies to have a defensive alliance. Things really don't progress much further than that, however. The New England Confederation will become important during the First Anglo-Dutch War in the 1650s, despite Massachusetts declining to participate, and that it will become a very major part of King Philip's War, which we are going to discuss in much, much more depth next season. For now, I simply wanted to introduce that there was a basic plan for the mutual defense of the colonies and let you know that this was a thing. Next season, we will get to see how it functions in reality. We have spent the last 15 episodes in New England, and now before we move on, I'd like to take the rest of today to look at some of the overarching themes and differences between Massachusetts and the other colony we talked in depth about, Virginia. The differences between the two colonies is immediately apparent by looking at the reasoning behind their establishment. Jamestown was founded because people wanted to make money. Sure, there was flowery language to make themselves feel better that they were going over to introduce the native populations to Christianity. However, the truth will always be that the primary motivator was financial. Everybody knew that the Spanish were making a killing down in what would become Mexico. 
those coming to Jamestown were looking for their fortune. The founding of New England could not be any different. Instead of a colony founded on the sole idea of making money, New England became a refuge for those being religiously persecuted in England. First, the pilgrims who had found themselves on the wrong side of the crown, and later the much larger persecution of the Puritans in England, leading to the Great Migration. As those heading to New England were trying to escape from the religious tension at home, their goal was to form a more perfect place to practice their faith. In the words of John Winthrop, they wanted to create a city on the hill. They wanted a place that all the other Puritans could look at and be amazed at their purity. This, however, was always going to be a totally impossible goal and is something that was doomed to fail before it even got started. Part of the problem is that there was just never one kind of Puritan in New England. We have beaten the separatist versus internal reform difference to death at this point, and I don't plan on rehashing it all again here. However, this is just one of the many differences that existed amongst the different groups. Massachusetts is the center of the New England universe and would remain noticeably intolerant throughout the 1630s and 40s. This is something that would lead to further fracturing of the colony. By the time we roll into the 1640s, we have gone from two colonies, Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay Colony, and have expanded out to include Connecticut, New Haven, New Hampshire, Rhode Island. These differences between the groups was going to make it impossible for New England to ever become that city on the hill that Winthrop fought so hard to establish. England didn't look across the Atlantic and marvel at the utopian Puritan land on the other side. In fact, the Puritans back in England hardly noticed what was going on across the Atlantic. They were distracted by their own concerns, which was not running off to create some Puritan haven, but was rather turning England itself into that Puritan homeland. It can be argued that the English Civil War effectively removed the need for New England altogether. After all, persecution in England was now theoretically a thing of the past. Both William Laud and Charles himself had been removed from power and then subsequently executed. England was in the hands of Parliament, which was, by the 1630s, a very Puritan body. Oliver Cromwell, who was well on his way to becoming the Lord Protectorate, a term that he used instead of the suddenly out of vogue king, was himself a Puritan. We have seen the intangible effects of this as well in the colonies. After the 1640s, the immigration rate from England to New England slows down dramatically. In this way, Massachusetts and New England as a whole is going to fall short of that goal of becoming a city on the hill. However, despite not accomplishing this in, New England is going to become impactful in other ways that in the 1640s are totally lost on everybody, both in New England and England itself. I didn't touch on it much at the time, but one of the most critical things that I see coming out of New England at this time was an educated population. Way back in episode 1.4, when we talked about religion, I had spent some time talking about how, for Protestants, it was the Bible, not the clergy, that stood at the center of the world. Our Calvinist Puritans, who were certainly in agreement that the Bible should be at the very core of their religious practices, recognized that it was not enough for somebody to read the Bible to them, but rather that they themselves needed to be able to read the Bible. What emerges, therefore, is a highly literate society. Literacy requires education, which is something that would become a central part of life in New England. By the 1640s, there were basic requirements in place that ensured parents made sure that their children could read and write. Grammar schools would appear and become part of life for children in New England. Now, at this point, the concern is being able to read the Bible. 
However, in the years, decades, and century to follow, that dedication to an educated population is going to have other effects as well. Knowing that such a wide portion of the population could read and write, is it any surprise that during the 1760s, it is going to be in New England that dissent begins to form towards the crown? When political pamphlets began to proliferate, you ended up with an educated, literate population to receive those pamphlets. To be fair, there are a lot more reasons why New England is going to become the epicenter of political dissatisfaction and eventually rebellion during the 1760s and 70s. We are, of course, going to be addressing all of those issues as they come our way. However, very early on, we see movements in a direction that make this possible, specifically with that high literacy rate. Ultimately, the first 20 years in New England, or 30 years if you're in Plymouth, can be defined by a handful of key characteristics. Well, they did not necessarily become the city on the hill. They did become self-sufficient in a very short period of time. They developed their own legal codes and governments. And while I remain very hesitant to say that they were doing anything outside of what was necessary, New England was operating more or less independently of England. As we have discussed, this wasn't necessarily New England making early assertions of their independence from the crown, but rather it was from the fact that England was busy preparing for and fighting civil wars. They didn't have the time to mess around with a handful of colonies half a world away. For people like Winthrop, Williams, Hutchinson, and Bradford, this allowed them the opportunity to put themselves into leadership roles and make society in the way they deemed fit. Well, there is no talk of separation, and we need to be careful believing that the colonies were producing constitutions, the colonies were forging their own path. It is also important to understand that this is going to set up conditions that are going to have very long-term impacts for New England and for the future United States at large. Well, there was no talk of separation in the 1640s at all. Nobody was wanting more control by England. They were plenty happy doing their own thing and running their own government without having to worry about interference from the home islands. The relative independence that New England is afforded here at the very beginning of their existence is something that they are going to not only value, but they are going to come to view it as a basic right. Throughout the next few seasons, and especially next season, we are going to see time and time again what happens when England makes attempts to regain some of that control over New England. And spoiler alert, it generally is not going to be something that ends well. Everybody was very happy being left alone. And with that, I'm going to give the New Englanders their wish and leave them alone. We have spent 15 weeks now exploring New England, and I'm finally feeling ready to set their story aside, momentarily at least, and move forward. However, for those of you who just love the history of New England, we are going to be back often over the next several seasons, as New England is going to play such a pivotal role in our story. Next time, we are going to take some time and explore the introduction of slavery into the colonial United States. Few things are going to affect and shape the United States more than slavery, and by the time that 1650 rolls around, it is slowly growing in the colonies. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. We will be back here next time to discuss the introduction of slavery. For my listeners in the United States, I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And for everybody else, no matter where you are, I hope you have a wonderful two weeks.